Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. We give you honor, Lord God. Thank you for being here with us, inviting us even to be in your presence. Thank you that you hear and you answer prayer. Thank you that you love us so much you gave your one and only son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your spirit to be with us, to fill us, to empower us, to comfort us, to encourage us, to stimulate us to love and good deeds. Thank you. Thank you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray now with our hearts of gratitude that you would still see fit to visit us in the communication of your word, that in your wonderful words of life, we would find hope, we would, we would find peace, we would find the love that we need, and we would also be stimulated to be the people we ought to be, to do what you would have us do, to live the way we ought to live. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock, you are our redeemer. We give you thanks. Thank you, Lord God. God has sold our great Jehovah. We're pilgrims in this barren land. We're weak, but you're mighty. Hold us with your powerful hand and bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us till we want no more. Amen. Amen. Sisters and brothers, it really is an honor, a privilege, a joy to be with you today. Uh, thank you, Brother Carlton and the worship team. Um, it's, it, it's just a blessing for us, for Susan and me, to join you all here. Um, we've heard so many wonderful things about your, your church and and now to be able to minister alongside you, at least for this time, it's been a, it's a true blessing. So thank you. They say that opposites attract. It's true with magnets. North pole of one sticks to the south pole of the other. But you know, two norths repel, two souths repel. Opposites attract for magnets. Maybe they do for people also. I mean, everybody likes a good, you know, lady in the tramp kind of a story or something like that or some version of Pygmalion or something. I, I cringe over those things, you know, but that's me. But anyway, rather than magnets and love stories, I want to get into some of the moral and ethical implications that John brings up in chapter 2. Last week, we were in chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2. And here in chapter 2, the rest of it anyway, he emphasizes opposites. John, in many ways, is the master of dualities. His short writing is full of contrast. And in using these contrasts, he actually is creating a tension. The tension is that John doesn't leave much room for middle ground, for much equivocation. John wants his readers to experience the wonder of being in solidarity with Jesus and with each other. And to experience that solidarity, we want to keep pursuing intimacy with Jesus, which entails being honest about what we love. Because what we love determines what we do. And for John, there really isn't a middle road when it comes to a relationship with Jesus. We are either walking in the light or we are walking in darkness. And John is encouraging his readers to stay on the path with Jesus. And as he encourages us to stay on this path, he presents a series of contrasts. And we were introduced to a couple of those contrasts last week, truth versus lie, light versus darkness. And it's going to be where we pick up this week. 
So please allow me to read from where we left, left off last time. And I'm going to continue actually all the way through to the end of chapter 2. So if you are able, please follow along with me. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Yet I am writing you with a new commandment that is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says I am in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Whoever loves a brother or sister lives in the light and such a person, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates another believer is in the darkness, walks in the darkness and does not know the way to go because the darkness has brought on blindness. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young people, because you have conquered the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young people, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desire are passing away, but those who do the will of God live forever. Children, it is the last hour as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his, as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. The Lord indeed blesses the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. The first duality that John gets at is light versus darkness. And, I, and he equates that to love versus hate. Being an urban church, you can relate to an experience I had serving a church in Washington, D.C. We had recently left our new community church in Brooklyn, and I took a position as an associate pastor at a church in Washington, D.C. And shortly after we got there, and I tell this story in a book I wrote, 
Um, but I, so some of you may have be acquainted with it, but I tell the story of how the youth leaders called a meeting for the elders and the parents of the teenagers, which tended to be the same people, because they were in that same age group for the most part. And they were, they were anxious because they no longer wanted to lead a youth group that had, and here's, I'm using air quotes for those of you who might just be listening and not watching, neighborhood kids, and not, uh, to not have the neighborhood kids, but just our kids. So it started a conversation in the fellowship hall of that church because, well, I had problems with it. Um, frankly, I think the meeting would have ended much more quickly if I had just not said anything. But I raised my hand because I wanted to know how do you define these neighborhood kids? I mean, it was a euphemism. It's Washington, D.C., for goodness sake. We knew the neighborhood kids were black kids. Um, most of the members of the church with teenagers lived outside the city. They lived in the suburbs of Northern Virginia or in, or in Maryland. So I said, this doesn't feel right. They said, well, of course, our son could come to the youth group, Jonathan. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I, mean, I worked there. I was hoping he could come to you. And, I, and they said, and he could bring his friends. I said, wait, 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 wait. I said, we still have a problem here. And I said, you know, as soon as something goes down, I said, because it's youth, something's going to go down. I said, I know who's going to get blamed for what goes down. I said, this is not good. We're setting up the kids. So it actually turned into this big conversation. So finally, out of frustration, I said, well, if we're going to have, you know, these kids separated from our kids, I said, we, so I said, I guess we're going to have separate and equal youth groups. Now, I said that on purpose because I figured the history majors in there, because there were some, would have gotten the separate and equal, right? So one person who was a history teacher, he actually stopped and said, well, what do you mean by that? I said, you're saying that we, got, you know, we have these kids we've had a relationship with, but you don't want them in the youth group. I said, but I think they should have an equal youth group experience. So I actually had my job description modified to be a pastoral presence to those kids who were, by the way, coming to be tutored in our after-school program. That's how we knew the kids in the first place, because we had this tutoring program. What was ironic about all of this is that the church has a big sign outside. It's still there after, I don't know, maybe 30 years. Um, a church for all peoples. That's the irony, isn't it? And I reflect on that story often, because it pushes me in my thinking and I try to help push others to be honest about what we mean when we say we love people. Because I fear it's too easy for Christians to say, I love my neighbor, but not want certain people to be their neighbors. And those neighbors could actually be sisters and brothers in Christ. I mean, back in 2017, the PBS program Frontline, they aired a series called, uh, an episode actually called Poverty, Politics, and Profit. And at one point, they discussed Section 8 housing, and they interviewed a white woman who did not want people with Section 8 vouchers in her neighborhood. And so PBS, they always put transcripts of their stuff. So from the transcript, they have this section that I uh, want to quote here, and it starts with a quote from the woman they interviewed. Her name is Ms. Humphrey. In this neighborhood, most of us are stay-at-home moms with young kids, she says. The lifestyle that goes with Section 8 is usually working, single moms or people who are struggling, struggling to keep their heads above water. I feel so bad saying that, she adds. It's just not people who are the same class as us. When asked if others who did not have the same opportunities as her could live in her neighborhood, she says, the problem with that is I hear a lot of the unfair, oh, we haven't been given this or that, 
or we haven't been afforded things you have been afforded. I don't look at multimillionaires and think, why don't I have a yacht? Humphrey says the issue for her is not about race. She says her neighborhood with rows of tidy new houses and well-cut lawns is diverse. The real concern, she says, is that the voucher holders won't fit in or they won't understand her life. So I saw a clip of this interview and I couldn't help but think, she probably goes to church somewhere. <laughs> I mean, the way she described her life. I mean, and there are plenty of people with Section 8 vouchers who have faith in Jesus and, and go to church. The tendency of American Christians is then to, well, we got to find a loophole to excuse this woman or at least soften the reality of what she's saying. For John, it's darkness. It's hate. John doesn't have a middle on this. He says in verse 9, whoever says I'm in the light while hating a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Uh, now, I don't know if Ms. Humphrey is a professing Christian or not, but I told you my own story because I know people with the same kind of views she has. And keep in mind that in the Bible, love and hate are more than emotions. Love and hate are attitudes that get expressed in actions. So let me encourage you because you, we need churches like New Community. So I want to keep on encouraging you, especially we need churches like you in our very densely populated urban context. You show love not by putting up a sign that says, we love you, but in the way you meet people, in their pain, in their confusion, in their poverty, and even in their joy. Hate is a product of darkness, but love thrives in the light. Man, I should tweet that. <laughs> love thrives in the light. There's a second duality that John gets at in this chapter. Love versus lust, which is the same as obedience to God versus allegiance to worldly systems. You know, when I'm reading that passage of 15, 16, 17, and he says, don't love the world, things in the world, I just find it remarkable that first century Christians were struggling in the same sense that we are, despite the relatively primitive way they were living compared to us. They also had to fight the temptation to satisfy their selfishness. And they didn't have big flat screen TVs or Ferraris. The Gospel of Luke records this episode of Jesus telling a story. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. When I used to hear that parable when I was a kid, I used to think, you know, when you don't have a whole lot and you grow up without a whole lot, you think, Yes, give me the bigger barn. We need to store up some stuff. I used to think, what's wrong with the problem? But it's that last line. Jesus makes it clear. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich towards God. And so we read that and we think, oh, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. It's not just about the billionaires. Anyone 
can store up treasures for themselves and not be rich toward God. Our competitive society nurtures this in us. Our society tramples on the lowly. We, 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 we either don't see them or we want to get rid of them. We even learn to see people as possible threats to our own success as if there's just this limited amount of God's abundance. And then take Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. They can make us feel jealous or inadequate or stupid or insignificant. And it's part of our human instinct to compare ourselves to others and to what other people have. John speaks of loving the world. And when New Testament writers speak about the world, they typically mean human systems that operate contrary to God's way. They don't mean the planet itself. They don't, even, they don't mean the people. Because remember, we sang it earlier, God so loved the world, meaning the people and everything else that God created. The problem is the way the world operates. So any unjust system that is greedy or that exploits can be called worldly. The way of the world is competition and not collaboration. The way of the world is to entice, to pull you towards self-indulgence, to appeal to your baser desires, to have you look out for number one, America first. But John doesn't mince words. He says, for those who lust after the world, the love of the Father is not in that person. Whew, ouch. The point is that, isn't that we can't own anything. I mean, you don't have to take a vow of poverty. But it wouldn't hurt for Christians to think more about simplicity. And before I was ordained in the Evangelical Covenant Church, I had been ordained in the Mennonite church. I, I've had a weird um, life, but we'll get into that another time. <laughs> but I was ordained in the Mennonite church, USA. And one thing, yeah, amen. And one thing about Mennonites is a long tradition of wrestling with what simplicity means. The Mennonites are not Amish, but they're related. They got, I mean, they got kinfolk back there that are Amish. I mean, some of them have written books about it. So they have a common background. There was a group actually at one time called Black Bumper Mennonites because as cars were coming out and they drove, Amish, you know, they still had the horse and buggy, but they painted their chrome bumpers black because the chrome was, well, too fancy. <laughs> Even at that church that I served on Capitol Hill, I was telling you about that um, we had, uh, it, was, it was founded by Mennonites, so there were a lot of Mennonites there. And, and not that they were living that simply, but they liked to think that they were. And um, so we used to have an overhead projector Remember those with transparencies and, you know, putting a, and then we get to the next verse, you know, put that slide. I mean, right now we think it's a problem to press that button and get to the slide on time, but we had to get the right thing and then make sure it was not upside down or slide it under the light, you know, how that went. So I went to this workshop with some of the folks from church who was on worship and they said, uh, um, they, were try they were of course trying to push products and everything, I get that, but one of the things they had was a projector. Like, like you have, a, a, a regular projector, not an overhead. And I said, this is a good idea. People were already starting to use PowerPoint and stuff. So I said, let's, let's get the projector. And the worship deacon said, it's too fancy. <laughs> yeah, they got one a year after I left. But I think that might have been a statement they were making. I don't know. <laughs> well, you don't have to go full Amish or full, you know, black bumper Mennonite. But what do you love? How does your life relate to what you love? 
I mean, as you study the contemplative life and you're doing that now, the deeply formed life, Pastor Velota is going to help you think about rhythms. How does your rhythm of life reflect your love? Does what you love cause you to avoid Sabbath practices? Does what you love cause you to increase consumer debt? Does what you love make you miss out on important family events? Does what you love enable you to go on national TV and say why you don't want neighbors with Section 8 vouchers? What do you love? So John has made some contrasts. Love, hate. Love, lust. He's got another one, a startling contrast coming up here. Christ versus Antichrist. Confessing Jesus versus denying Jesus. John talks about people <clears throat> who left the Christian movement, <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, and honestly, we don't know, <clears throat> excuse me, who those people are. And scholars are continually trying to figure out who these people are, because that's what scholars do, but that's a, that's a side point, because I'm in that camp, so, <laughs> and, um, and you wonder, who are these people who, who left? You know, by the way, for those of you who are like serious Bible students, the same thing is happening with Galatians, because Paul is upset with some people but he doesn't say who they are. He never names a name. So here's John doing the same thing. These people left. You know who they are. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like the subtext. That's like in the parentheses there. You know who they are. You know who I'm talking about. We don't know who he's talking about. We can only hypothesize, but John, he doesn't have to name the names, right? They know. But the point is not to focus on them. The point is there's always opposition. And sometimes that opposition infiltrates the Christian community. So John calls the opposition antichrist. And he's not talking about somebody with, you know, 666 etched in his scalp or something out of the Left Behind books or whatever other weird stuff people have out there. John does say it is the last hour, though. He's saying it's a time of reckoning. God's judgment is on the horizon. And those who deny the reality of Jesus are not really part of the Christian movement. John says they left, and by leaving, they showed they were not really part of the movement. But it's not just why they left. He is, he is saying, thank you. He's, he doesn't even focus on just why they left, but also what they confess and what they believe. They deny the Father and the Son. So what's it mean to deny the Father and the Son? It doesn't have to mean, you know, being hauled into the court or something or into the, to the authorities and raising your hand and saying, I, I swear I don't believe. And in this case, that probably wasn't even happening yet. They might not have been at that kind of place of persecution where they had to, had to, had to make a public statement. But there are some people, of course, who do that. They're very clear and publicly make a statement that they do not believe in God. We, you know, they're atheists, of course. Some people might claim belief in God, but then they don't really know what to do with Jesus. The weird thing here, though, is John is talking about people who seem to be part of the movement. He says at some point they were with us, but then they left us. And this, so he's not talking about Roman pagans in general. He's talking about people who seem to be sisters and brothers. They came to the meetings. They ate. They seemed down with the cause. 
We, we planted a church called New Community. I mentioned that to you. This was in Brooklyn, and we struggled. We know what we're doing, but again, that's a whole other story for another time. Um, but as we were, we started our little tiny apartment in Brooklyn, and uh, we were moving to another space. And there was a young woman who had been part of us for quite a while. And as we were about to make this move, she told me she's not going to come anymore. And I, I really was saddened by this. We had helped her get into her apartment. We had, I felt like there were some bonds being drawn. And it wasn't, wasn't just that, you know, some people leave one church, go to another church. It's the way she said it. She said, look, church is something I go to, not something I'm part of. I was like, whoa. In my mind, those people theoretically existed, <laughs> but I didn't think they were part it, with us, you know. I didn't think they were in our group. Church is something I go to, not something I'm part of. So a little while later, she got sick and called us and asked for my wife, Susan, to come by and help her um, with some light housework and to go to the, to the pharmacy and get medicine for her. My wife didn't grow up in New York. I did. So I'm like, no. <laughs> I mean, so... <laughs> She was part of us, but she left us. <laughs> My wife is nicer than I am, so she helped her. <laughs> but for John, antichrist means acting as if Jesus is not real. It's not just leaving. It's what you are really believing and confessing. And if G acting as if Jesus is not real as if he's not the son of God, as if he's not the savior of the world, not the lamb who takes away our sin, not a healer, not a teacher of justice. And when people deny the fullness of who Jesus is, that is antichrist. So, so, so consider the people today who think Jesus has blonde hair and blue eyes. That's not the Jesus in the Bible. They are denying the reality of Jesus. Think about Jesus, uh, people who think that Jesus comes with an AK-47 ready to kill the enemies of America. This is not the Jesus we see in the Bible. Some people have a view of Jesus that is exactly opposite of what the Lord says about himself. There are plenty of American Christians who can turn to Old Testament passages about bloodshed, but then rationalize their way out of the Sermon on the Mount. We actually serve a Lord who says, love your neighbor as yourself. Sisters and brothers. John does not tell his people to engage in some sort of heresy hunt. He's not naming names. The goal isn't to go out looking for antichrist. I mean, that'd be like a short-term series on Amazon Prime or something. But that's, that's, not, that's not what he's telling us to do. The point is to be aware that antichrist will eventually show their true colors. Don't be overwhelmed that some people who claim to know Jesus eventually reveal that they hate you or your neighbors or that they don't believe Jesus said for us to love our enemies. Jesus actually said that one, love your enemies. But John doesn't end this whole thing on a downer. He's talked about love versus hate, light versus darkness. He's talking about lust versus love. He's talking about Christ versus antichrist. And he comes to another, the last duality we'll deal with for today. And that's really our overarching goal. It's remain versus leave. Life, eternal life versus shame. One of John's favorite words is remain. 
And the Greek word behind that is sometimes translated continue or abide. You can go back and see how many times John uses that word. I wanted to read the whole rest of the chapter for you because I wanted you to hear how many times he says abide, abide, abide. It's a bit, and that's just in chapter 2. It's a big deal for him. He uses the word a lot. The point is pretty clear, I hope. John wants us to keep on keeping on. John wants us to hang in there. John doesn't want us to throw in the towel. John doesn't want us to quit. I don't know any more cliches to use about staying firm, but the point is clear. As Paul would say, it remain steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, because the blessings will be eternal life, eternal life. We will get to be with Him forever. We will get to experience eternal joy. We will get to be in that city that doesn't need light because the Lord Himself is the light. We will get to be in the new Jerusalem that God has prepared for His people. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We're going to that place where God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. We're going to a place where there's no more crying there. We're going to see the king. No more dying there. We're going to see the king. An old song says it this way, oh, I want to see him look upon his face, there to sing forever of his saving grace. On the streets of glory, let me lift my voice. Cares all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. Are you looking? Are you looking to be in that place? Eternal life is ours. Sisters and brothers, the world is full of haters. The world is full of people who lust rather than love. The world is full of antichrists working against our Lord's desires. But you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And whether our neighbors understand it yet or not, they need you to be like Jesus for them. And we need each other. We need that joyful solidarity. We need to support one another in this experience called life. Amen? Amen. Oh Lord, we give you thanks because you're good. Your mercies endure forever, forever. I thank you, Lord God, for your people. I thank you for your servants. I thank you for the man we call John, who wrote this to encourage his people way back then. And your word still speaks to us. So I pray, Lord God, for your will to be done in our lives, in our life together, as your people here, new community, as we strive to be your agents of peace and reconciliation, help us to know your love so deeply that we can't help but to express it to others. Have your way, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.